So um, first of all, just to, I'm, it's not fair for me to ask you to introduce yourselves to each other without me telling you a little bit about me. Um, and so let me just say by introduction that I'm new to this congregation. Um, I came to Temple Shalom uh, as the senior rabbi back in June, June, July, uh, from the United States uh, in Southern California, actually, where I served as a rabbi for 13 years at another reform synagogue. The synagogue that you're in here, Temple Shalom, is a reform temple that's sort of on the the more liberal side of the spectrum of Jewish practice. Um, and this congregation has been here for 50 years. We have another rabbi, Rabbi Carrie Brown. She's also teaching this class. We had so many people that were interested in participating in Taste of Judaism, we had to open up a second track. Some of you might know about that. So she teaches the Tuesday night track, uh, which began last week, actually. Um, and, and she's my colleague here. So I, uh, we moved from the United States to, to Canada just this past summer. We're loving it here. I say we, I have a wife, uh, her name is Sharon, and we have three young children who are eight, six, and two and a half. Um, we live on the east side of the city, and um, I, I was just back in Los Angeles actually for some family celebrations and parties, and though we had missed our friends, I, I don't miss Southern California or Los Angeles for a minute. I think we live in the greatest place in the world right here. Rain or shine, it doesn't matter. And everybody that we've met along the way has just been so so kind and welcoming, and uh, it, it's, it's good to be here. So I became a rabbi just by a little more background. A rabbi, for those that are unfamiliar, uh, in Hebrew means teacher. Really, it's actually more possessive. It's my teacher. Um, and, uh, and so rabbis are, by training, teachers. And actually, I have a master's in education as well. But uh, you go through a five, or in my case, a six-year, because of the extra master's, uh, graduate course of study after your undergraduate degree. Um, and I did my training in the United States and also in Israel. Uh, and I became a rabbi in part because I couldn't hit a curveball. I'd rather have been a professional baseball player. That's meant to be funny. Um, no, actually, this is in some ways, um, I think, what I was destined to be. My mother is a Jewish educator. And she got her start as a Jewish educator doing programs like this, doing Taste of Judaism programs and working with people that were interested or curious about Judaism, and her grandmother did that, or her mother, I should say, my grandmother, did that before her. So this is, in some ways, the family business. And um, it's, uh, it's really a privilege to work with this community and to, uh, to get an opportunity to share with you something that I care very deeply about, um, which, is, which is Judaism by in, in particular, but more than that, what Judaism, I think, and all religious traditions can offer, um, which is, uh, to have a, a life filled with meaning. And so what we're going to do uh, tonight and over the next uh, three nights is to give you just a taste of Judaism's approach to how to have a life filled with meaning, to have a meaningful life. And I think that those are universal values. They may be particular in the way that Judaism approaches that goal, but it's a goal that we all have, right? We all know that the most important thing we learn in life is that life is finite, that we don't live forever. And when we learn that, our life comes into focus. You know, it's the reason why 17-year-olds will drive 92 miles an hour, I don't know what that is in kilometers, uh, 92 miles an hour on a freeway at 2 o'clock in the morning, and a parent of a newborn child will drive home from the hospital with their hands on the wheel like this, right, at you know, 10 miles an hour, whatever that equivalent is in kilometers, because the 17-year-old thinks they're going to live forever, and the parent of the newborn realizes that they're not going to, and that the child not only in the back seat will outlive them and they want to capture every moment of that. And that, in its essence, is why I'm a Jew and why I'm a rabbi, and I think what spirituality is. 
it is to try to have a life filled with meaning in every moment that we have. So that said, we're going to talk about Judaism today, not Jewishness. Judaism is the practice of living a life of meaning. Jewishness is, Jewishness is an ethnicity. And it's tricky about Judaism or being a Jew because you can be both culturally, ethnically, culturally Jewish and also spiritually, religiously Jewish. Um, but here we're not talking about a cultural identity of which you're born into, but rather a spiritual identity, uh, an, ethnic, uh, an, an ethical identity, uh, a matter of practice. If at any time in the midst of my talking you have a question, just raise your hand. Okay, and I'll do my best to answer your question. If I need to finish a thought, I'll just ask you to wait. But I don't mind being interrupted, and I also don't mind um, being told to move it along if you feel like I'm hitting a point too much. Uh, and I'll warm up as we go. <laughs> the uh, sort of the, the template for tonight is I'm going to sort of share with you some thoughts on this uh, and work through. I have a handout for you. Work through some some texts. I'll explain what that term means. Um, for about uh, 45 minutes or so, an hour. And then we'll take a break. In Judaism, we don't do anything without food. So there's an old joke about Jewish history. You know, they tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. That's the entire history of the Jewish people. Um, so we, we, we have some nosh for you. That's a Yiddish term for food to eat on, eat with. Uh, and then we'll come back together. I'll try to finish whatever I didn't get to. I'll answer any other questions that remain. But again, I'd like to, this to be a dialogue and answer questions as we go, you'll warm up a little bit and it'll be more comfortable for you in time. I know right now you're terrified. You don't have to be. Um, and then we'll end our, our evening time. Actually, we're going to go into the other room, which is our sanctuary, uh, the place where we do our worship. And I just kind of want to show you what that space is like. Because uh, one of the things we want to extend to you um, is an opportunity to join us, uh, to just sit and observe and see what Jewish worship is like. So not this Friday, but next Friday, which date is the... 21, uh, February 21st, we're having um, what we call our musical Shabbat service here. So we have sort of a, it's a, it's a, it's a lively and, and, and fun, not that our services aren't lively and fun, but this one is particularly lively and fun, service at uh, 6.30 on uh, Friday the 21st, and it's followed by a dinner. And we want to invite you to come and join us for that. Um, and uh, your mentors that are sitting at your table, those that help facilitate the conversation that we just had, will hopefully be here as well so that you shouldn't feel like a stranger or not know what's going on. And if you've ever wanted to see what Jewish worship is about, we hope that you'll join us for the service. And we hope that you'll come for dinner as well. We've got a special price on the dinner. We got you a deal. What we charge? $8, I think. You can't get a dinner for $8. So just come for the food and don't worry about the service. Um, so we hope that you'll, you'll come. If you're interested in, in signing up for that, just talk to Mary. You all met Mary, I hope, when you signed in. Talk to Mary about that. She'll send you an email reminder as well so that we can extend that invitation and enjoy that together. So we're going to go into the sanctuary at the end. And I'm going to kind of show you around the geography of a Jewish sanctuary or worship site. Um, any questions about that so far? Again, if you have a question, you do what? Just raise your hand or wave in some other fashion. Whistle. Whistle is good. Um, so the, the Taste of Judaism uh, program that we're going to do is broken into three parts. What we could call uh, you know, the three pillars of Judaism. God, Torah, and Israel. And it's on those three uh, legs that sort of the whole Jewish uh, prospect, the whole Jewish experience 
the whole Jewish identity thing stands. Tonight we're going to talk about God. Why not take the easy one first, right? Um, and by God, what we mean is spirituality. And by spirituality, I mean how do we have a meaningful life? What does God expect of us? What are we allowed to expect from God? What is the Jewish relationship with God? What's the human experience of God? Is God active in our world? If I'm capable of answering any of those questions, it'll be a successful evening. Um, and then in the following two weeks, we're going to look at Torah. Now, Torah we use as a term that can mean a lot of different things. There is the physical Torah, which is the Hebrew Bible. And that is the scroll that is in the ark that I'll, I'll show you at, at some point. But also the expanse of Jewish legal texts, sort of Torah with a small T instead of a capital T. But essentially what we mean is Jewish ethics the code that Jews live by, or try to live by. Um, one thing that we have to understand from the beginning is that when I say this is what Jews do, I can't say that with any, with any specificity. Because Jews are across, like any other religious tradition, uh, across a spectrum of practice. So I can give you sort of what I do as a Jew, or what Reformed Jews in general do, Reform being, again, this particular branch of Judaism, but there will be, and in your own experience, you've probably met a spectrum of Jewish practice from the most uh, ardent, the most stringent, the most traditional, if you would, to the most liberal, the most you know, free-flowing and, and open, and, and, and all of those things in between. So next week, we're going to look at Jewish ethics uh, and also Jewish rituals, the Jewish way of life. Um, and then on the third, when we say Israel here, we will talk a little bit about the land and the country of Israel, but really we mean Jewish people, and Jewish culture, uh, Jewish community. Um, and we'll talk more about that when we get to that week. Um, so I guess the first question is why begin with God? It's a fairly big topic to start with. We could have started something easier like Jewish history or something like that. Um, so. Uh, a definition of God that a teacher of mine gave me. You know, it's called God, G-O-D. And for me, that means good orderly direction. G-O-D stands for good orderly direction. Many people have different concepts of God. God is a higher power, a power greater than yourself. For some of us growing up as kids, it was God with, as an old man on a beard sitting on a cloud. How many of you had that concept of God as a child? You can still have it now if you want. God is a ray of sunshine or is a rainbow. God is a voice in our head. God is the, the compass point, the source um, from which everything flows. And so in Jewish tradition, we, we focus on God in the sense of this, I, this good orderly direction, what is expected of us. It is not necessary to believe in God in order to be a Jew. In fact, agnostics make great Jews. Because one of the beautiful things about being Jewish is that we are not only allowed to, but encouraged to struggle with God, to argue with God, to grapple with God. We'll look at some things about that. The word Yisrael, and Jews are called in Hebrew, B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. Have you ever heard that terminology before? The Bible's filled with the children of Israel went this way and that way. Yisrael, the word Yisrael in Hebrew means Yisra. In Hebrew, is to struggle. El is God. At the core of what it means to be a Jew is to struggle with God. What does God want from me? What do I want from God? What's expected of me? What are the limits 
of what God can ask of me? What are the limits of what I can ask of God? Um, can, I, can I expect God to intercede? You know, if I pray for, to win the lottery and I don't win it, does that mean that God doesn't exist? Or God doesn't care? Or God's not interested in the lottery? You know, or in something more, you know, more real, if I pray that, that, I, you know, that my loved one is healed from an illness that they're suffering, and they are healed, does that mean that God did that? Or if they aren't, God forbid, that God forbid, that God didn't do that. So we start with God because God is sort of the, the core of a whole spiritual thing. Whatever you define God, I guess my point that I want to make is however you define God, whatever God is for you, old man with a beard, power greater than yourself, all the things in between, um, it is, while it's not necessary to believe in God in order to be Jewish, we have, it is necessary, I think, to um, believe in the possibility of a God to at least grapple with the concept, to not be completely closed off to the idea that there are forces and powers in our world sorry, greater than ourselves. Um, if I can only read my handwriting. Um, so our relationship with God and how God sees us is the focus of the Jewish life, focus of Jewishness. Um, So the way we access God, um, or one of the ways to access God, is through study, through looking at texts and stories. We talk about Jews as being the people of the book, and when we say that, it's an expanse. It's not just the people of the Bible, but a series of, and collection of stories and books. Um, one of the things that Jews are privileged to have is a long history. Um, the, uh, we are currently celebrating the year 5,700 um, 5,774 since the day of creation, according to the Jewish calendar. Do I really believe that the world was created 5,774 years ago? No. I believe in Darwinism and evolution and all of those things. But from the time that we count from the beginning when God said, let there be light, we count 5,774 years. 3,500 of those years were of Jew Judaism, beginning with Abraham. And we'll look at that in a moment. Throughout all of that time, there have been people like you who have been curious about how do I get meaning out of life? What does God expect of me? What, what's my purpose here on, on earth? And in all of those times, those people have written down stories. And to those stories, others have come along and added commentary. And to those commentaries, others have come along and added questions. You are part of the people that write those stories and those questions and those commentaries. And so one of the, 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 the great treasure troves that we have in Judaism is this collection of sacred texts, of stories and philosophies and writings that when taken um, over the, the long view of time, hopefully lead to a clearer and clearer view of an answer to a question, whatever that question might be. How to be a good parent. Well, we can start all the way back in the stories of Adam and Eve, or not Adam and Eve, and what did their kids do? They killed each other. So we might not look to them for the great parenting model, right? But we come along and we look at, well, so what do they say about how Adam and Eve parented? Well, there have been Jewish scholars and, and philosophers who have looked at that question and said, well, this is where they did right, this is where they went wrong. And others who have looked at that and that and that. And, and that's what we study in Judaism. Not so interested in the answer, but the question. The question that comes up, which is, why did Cain kill Abel? What, what went wrong there? Because that's not what God intended. 
That's not how our intention is when we're creating, is to kill each other. That's, that'd be a waste of our creation. So we look at the question more than the answer. Um, so uh, really at the, at, the, at the basis, it's a quest to understand God um, and what God wants of us. Um, the other thing that I should just mention, uh, especially for those that have studied um, Christian religion, um, is that the Jewish process is different than the Christian process of text study. I'm not judging one over the other. But when Christians study the Bible, they go through a process called eisegesis and begin with, a, with an agenda. Jesus was the Messiah. And then try to find proof for that in the text. The Jewish process is actually the, the inverse of that. It's a process called exegesis, where we begin with the text and we try to then extract meaning from the text. So, for example, the Cain and Abel story, without trying to find the... the we, we begin with a story, Cain killed Abel. What, is, what happened there? What's the, what's the lesson in that text? So our, our, we don't start with an agenda, but, but come with a question, essentially. Um, and it's just important to sort of point that out if this will feel, as we start to look at text, slightly differently. We're not looking for proof of something beforehand, but rather to extract something of meaning from it after the fact. So let me stop there before I make, do my handout. Um, any questions about that? Any clarifications? Sorry, this keeps buzzing. Mm -hmm. Nothing. You've got that perfect. Please, thank you. Mm -hmm. Honestly, this is a big concept. Uh -huh. It's kind of interesting, I, I find, isn't it, that your uh, il illustration is, is a much more wide-ranging, I think, it's, you know, as an ex-Catholic, God was that a male. Uh, you know, right, old man with a beard on a cloud. Right. And all the rest of it. So from what you're saying, your concept of God, it's a much more diverse mm -hmm. concept. Yeah. But it's still a concept of a God. Well, I use God as a placeholder. It, 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 I use God as just a placeholder term for whatever it is you want to ascribe to have that power in your life that uh, to which towards you, you guide yourself. You know, that power that has an expectation of you. So for some of us, God could be you know, the voice of our long-deceased grandparent. And that could be God in our life knowing what that grandparent wanted of us and how we measure ourselves in relation to that, that can, can be a, a force for good in our life, as long as that's you know, a voice for good. Um, and you know, that's a departure from the, the theological view of a God that, you know, through speaking, created the world. But there's really not a huge difference in practicality in Judaism. Um, and I try not to get bogged down. They say God is in the details, right? I try not to get bogged down in those details. At the end of the day, it's about whether or not, on measure, I am a good person. Um, another thing that's important to just note about Judaism is Judaism is present world focused, not future life focused. We do have a concept of an afterlife in Judaism, but it is truly insignificant, and actually something that many Jewish scholars think that we brought in later because it was so popular in Christianity that we were kind of losing the, 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 the PR war if we didn't have it. Uh, it was bad enough we had circumcision. We were losing people on that. Then we took away shrimp, <laughs> cheeseburgers. So we had to throw in an afterlife just so that we could compete. Um, but Judaism is really concerned about how we live this life. We're judged in this moment. It's not about the future. It's about right now. 
And again, going back to that initial thing that I said about life being finite, that's where we get it all from. So whatever that concept is, um, as long as it has you know, a sense of holiness within it, that can be God. That can be the authority, the authoritative voice in your life. Now, we certainly make a, a suggestion of what that should be, and we say that that should be the Torah and those ethical texts. But it also says the other, which is that we're not independent operators. We can't make up our own rules. That we're not just free agents, and we can do whatever we want and call that good. That there is good and there is bad. And part of the Jewish experience is to grapple with what those two are and then to live according or accordingly to that good. Any other questions? This is heavy stuff to start with, I know. Would have been easier if we talked about matzo ball soup, right? Um, so I'll ask Mary and, and some of our uh, helpers here to pass these out. Thank you, Jenny. I'm going to need one also. So I, I think that the first question we don't want to ask um, is whose God is God? By the way, I know this is a daunting-looking packet. I'm only going to talk about the ones I circled. The rest are for you to read on your own if you want, unless you want to talk about those two. Um, but the first question, I think, is, so whose God is this God that we're talking about? Where do Jews get God from? And where do we get our relationship with God from? Now, I, I don't begin to suggest that what I, the, the history that I'm about to present to you is historical fact. It could be, his, I, I view it as historical narrative, as good literature, as the, 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 formation, the, the, the formation narrative, a narrative thread, I should say, that is the Jewish story. So we accept it as, as fact enough to operate on. But whether Abraham actually existed, or Sarah actually existed, and they lived, and they actually said those things, for some Jews along the spectrum, they would say, absolutely, that's what happened. For this Jew along the spectrum where I am, I say, maybe. But it's not that important. What's important is what was said. It was important that I take that as seriously in the same way that one can read great literature. You can read Shakespeare. And whatever the story that Shakespeare is telling you about you know, uh, King Henry really happened that way or not, it doesn't matter because what's in there is the essence of the thing, the, the, the valuable lessons that you can extract from, from any great story. And so we, we take this story as, I take this story as a historical narrative, but not historical fact. The Bible's not a very good history book in my experience. So if we look at, um, at letter A there in part two, sorry, in letter A there in part one, whose God is God? The following comes from a prayer that we say in our service. The Jewish worship, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, um, has some set prayers, some set formulas. These formulas are not magical, but they do touch upon important themes that help hopefully focus our thoughts uh, in the way that uh, any sort of chant or mantra can get you into a, you know, a clear focus on what you're doing. 
So we begin a prayer, one of our central prayers, with the following litany. Blessed are you, Lord. We use Lord. Sometimes it's a very masculine and domineering term. It's kind of old school. We've replaced it now with eternal or the source of creation. I'm going to use it here, but not in, a, not in an exclusive way that I think that God is only male and domineering. Blessed are you, Lord, our God and God of our ancestors, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, and some add, God of Sarah, God of Rebecca, God of Leah, and God of Rachel. So who were these seven people? Anybody remember them from your Sunday school days? Abraham and Sarah, if we put them together as couples, Abraham and Sarah. Um, uh, Abraham and Sarah, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, and uh, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Who were they? Okay, thanks for coming. It's not a trick question. You remember? Some of you remember? Where was this story? Where did it happen? What book of the Bible? What? First Genesis, right? The first family. Yes. Right, exactly. So if you read the Bible, if you read the Jewish Bible, the Christian Bible, it starts with this story. After Adam and Eve and the Noah and the fuzzy animals and the whole thing, it gets to this story. It's a story of a family. Now, were there other families in the world at that time? Absolutely. So this is the story of the first Jewish family. And Abraham was the first Jew. Now, how did he become the first Jew? We'll get to that uh, in part two uh, in a moment. But Abraham was the first Jew to, to conceive of God. And he and Sarah had a child. They had actually two children. They had Isaac and they had Ishmael. I'm not going to give a Bible class right now. One of them decided to follow in the family business and to become a Jew. The other was not given that opportunity. I'm not sure it was ever offered to him, which was Ishmael. He has his own path and his own story. It actually becomes the founding story of Islam. So this is where this relationship with God begins. When we talk about whose God is it? So the Jewish God begins with Abraham. The Jewish conception of God begins with Abraham. It's passed on to his son Isaac. It's passes it on to his son Jacob. All of these people, if you remember your Bible stories, are not great parents. They kind of mess up their kids a lot. There's sibling rivalry. There's, their kids try to kill each other. The parents play favorites. People run away. I mean, it's, it, if I was going to write a soap opera, I would just take the Bible and I would say, let's just update this for present day. These would be great stories, right? You've got Abraham sleeps with his handmaid. Sarah has infertility issues. Jacob and Esau literally try to kill each other, and then one steals the other's birthright. Um, then there's a reconciliation. I mean, it's, it's really good, dramatic stuff. It would make a good movie. It made a great book, most popular book ever. Um, so, so, so what are the implications of this? This is a God that we are, that if, if these are the first people, or some of the first people, and we are all descendants of them, then our relationship is a familial relationship. It's something that is passed down from generation to generation. That doesn't mean that it's exclusively familial. You can come in late, and you can say, well, I, I want to follow these beliefs also, but in the same way that values in your family are passed on generation to generation, this belief system is passed on in Judaism from generation to generation. Of course, it's passed imperfectly. Some choose to follow it and some don't. Some skip it for a generation. Some become more traditional. Some become less adherent to it. Some leave the faith altogether. 
but part of it is passed on from generation to generation in a familial way. Um, so letter B here. Um, so I appeared, this is God speaking, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. This is one of the Hebrew names for God, which means God Almighty. By the way, I, was, I drive to work every day on, um, on Maine. No, when I drive on Fraser. I, I drive to work sometimes on Fraser, and as I drive by, it's Fraser in like 30-something or other, there's a construction company called El Shaddai Construction. So if you know this name, you know that, I, I don't know if it's a Jewish company or not, it probably isn't, that it's the God Almighty Construction Company. Um, they're building a house. <clears throat> I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, as God Almighty, but I didn't make myself known to them by my name, which is impronounceable, yud heh vav heh, which is the Hebrew, called the Tetradomagon. Essentially, we have many names for God. And in Judaism, those names are often thematic. They express a particular um, aspect of God's personality. We have God Almighty, El Shaddai, but we might have another name that is more of God's compassionate side or God's maternal side. So we have many, many names for God, but we only have one God. But God, like people, has many sides of our personality. We are different things at different times. Or we are different people at different times. I'm totally different in the morning before I've had my first cup of coffee. So the basic Jewish assumption then about God is these three things. That God is invisible. God has no physical form. That even though we have many names for God and different relationships with God, God is still singular. God is one, monotheism and that God is not a human being. God is not present in this world. God has no physical form, no physical characteristics. Though the Bible is filled with physical explanations uh, of God's right hand, right? God's um, uh, strong arm, we've, we've read those things. Those, our tradition says, are all there um, to help the reader, to help the reader conceive or have a concept of God. So let me help you with one other thing um, before we move on, this whole idea of God being invisible. Uh, I hope I brought it. I did. No, I didn't. Okay. It's in my print. A, uh, a grandfather is tucking his granddaughter in at bedtime. And she, he says to her, do you know that I love you? And she says, yes, of course, Grandpa, I know that I love you. And he says, well, then touch my love for you. And she touches his head. She touches his hands. She touches his chest, his heart. And he says, well, how do you know that that's my love for you? And she says, well, with your head you kiss me and with your hands you hold me and we all know heart is love and the whole thing. He says, well those are just physical, the grandfather talking to his granddaughter, but those are just physical ex expressions of my love. Touch my love for you. And she just looks at him and she can't. He says, but you know that I love you, right? She says, absolutely I know that I love you. And he says, so touch my love for you. And she can't. So that frustrates or whatever. I don't know if she goes to sleep or not. She tuck, he tucks her in. The next night, he's tucking her in again. 
And she says, he says, touch my love for you. And she thinks she's got it now, and so she puts her hand on her own heart. And she says, your love for me is inside of here. And he says, if that's the case, then hug yourself. And so she hugs herself. And holds herself. And pats herself on the shoulder and the head. And they laugh. And they realize how foolish that looks. How foolish that is when you embrace yourself. It's just somehow completely insufficient. And they realize in that moment two things. That one, love is a very, very powerful thing. And we can see the evidence of love everywhere. But the source of love is untouchable. The source of love is intangible. And the second thing is that love requires another person. That love is in between you and another. It's that glue that holds another together. Because when you hug yourself, that doesn't work. But to hug another, it's love is the thing that brings that hug together. And I share this as an example of what God is. How do I know that God exists? God, for me, is like a force like love. It's a powerful thing. Love can make you do crazy, stupid things. If you've ever been in love, you know, right? And we're coming up on a holiday that's all about celebrating the crazy, stupid things that love does. Not a Jewish holiday, St. Valentine's Day, but still a Jewish concept. But I, but I can't see it. I can see an evidence of it, but I can't see it, I can't touch it. The same thing with God. And that God requires, God exists in relationship with us and God, or maybe with us and another person, and God is the glue. So when you think about God, and if God is a difficult concept for you, I invite you to think about God as love, in the same way that, God, that love is a force in your life that can inspire you and motivate you to do things. Any questions on that? I hope that's a helpful analogy. Okay, so let's sort of dive in. Um, so how did it all begin? So we talked about uh, Abraham before. Here he's called Avram. We used a couple different names for Abraham. Uh, I could explain that when it's not. When the second taste, the second helping, I'll explain that of Judaism. Uh, so letter A. I would ask you all to read, but since you didn't raise your hand to answer questions, I won't put it upon you to read also. The Lord said to Avram, Go forth from your native land. This comes from the book of Genesis, okay, in the Bible. Go forth from your native land, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. And Avram went forth as the Lord had commanded him, and Lot, his uh, uh, brother-in-law or so, uh, went with him. This is the first Jewish encounter with God. It's not that God doesn't appear in the story beforehand. God does, the creation of the world, and Noah's Ark, and the Tower of Babel, and Adam and Eve. But this is the first Jewish encounter with God. And what is significant to it? It is that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, heard a call to leave his father's house, to leave everything that he had known. And what was his father? His father lived um, in a land called Haran, and his father was an idol maker. And idol makers make idols, and this was the family business, was idolatry. And God said to Abraham, this is no place for you to live. These are bad influences for you. 
And so Abraham picked up, hearing this call, and he left, and he sought a better place to raise his family. You all probably have a story like that in your own families, of somebody up through the generations in your family that felt an imperative call out of necessity, out of a, a spiritual void, out of a sense of a better promise and a hope on a distant shore, and you picked up and you left. Or your gen generations of your family picked up and left. And we don't really know for sure what it was that motivated that great-great-great-grandfather to do it. But for many of us, thank God they did. Because had they not, then the life that we have might not even exist because of God knows whatever might have happened in that old land. How many of you have a story like that in your family? So the difference with Abraham in that story is it wasn't a headline in the newspaper that said, in the Jewish case, the Nazis are coming, you know, or said that the market is crashing, or said that this job is no longer needed here. The difference in the Jewish story is that Abraham heard that calling from God, which I would locate not as a voice from heaven, but a voice inside of him. That moment, and maybe some of us have done this more, um, more recently in our own lives, the moment when we realize I've got to make a change. I'm going on a course and a path, and this is not where I want to end up. And that's where Judaism began. It began with a quest for meaning, a quest for a better life. It didn't know that it was going to include keeping kosher and having the synagogue and wearing a yarmulke and all of these things. It just said, I need more meaning. I need a better life. And this was the path that Abraham chose. The product of that is this Torah, this story, that I'm going to try to unfold for you over these next three evenings. So turn the page. Skip all the way down to letter D. So this is at another place in... Uh, in the Bible, we read this commandment. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. Other gods, now this is a, this is a story about this commandment. Other gods, but are they gods? Are these other things gods? Has it not been said, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they, they were no gods? This is from the book of Isaiah. What then does the scripture, does the Bible mean when it says other gods? Merely that those which other, others call God. Jews are to be idol breakers. Judaism gave the world the concept of ethical monotheism. So this is an important concept in Judaism. There is only one God, this idea of ethical monotheism. And what does that mean in practicality? We can make gods out of lots of things. We practice idolatry all the time in our modern world. It's one of those things I think actually that we need to focus more on uh, across the religious spectrum is the idol. What are some of the idols that we have in modern times today? What are some of the things that we make as gods in our lives? Yeah. A crucifix. So there's the symbol. But we can move out of the religious spectrum either. either. What's that? Fame. Fame, right? We even have a, I don't know if they have any, American Idol, right? And we even have that. So, fame and celebrity. But what else? What else? What's that? Money. Money has a power 
that can get us to move. Right? If, if, if God is a voice that gets us to move from one place to another, money can do that. The pursuit of money can cause you to leave a perfectly good place in the hopes of greater riches on the other side, even if it means that you're going to sacrifice being near your parents, the schools that's good for your kids, your relationship that you love and you're in, but there's a better job over there, and with money, you can do all so much more. Money becomes a, a god in our lives. What else? Physicality, right? The pursuit of the perfect body. You know, the gym becomes our sanctuary. You know, our, our workouts become our worship. How about, uh, how about this? Right? Won't this ringing or beeping cause you to get up from holding the person that you love on the sofa and go check this? Won't this binging and ringing and beeping cause you to not look somebody else in the face because you've got you to be present here? Anything that, that, you know, they say in 12-step programs, if, that, you know, anything that has a power over you, that becomes a god and an authority in your life. What else? What's another god, an idol that we have in our society today? Well, there are others. We'll leave it at that. So the, so the Jewish contribution to this, and again, I'm talking about a life of meaning. This is universal. You can apply this in whatever religious tradition you came in here with. And truly, I hope that you leave here with that same religious tradition and that it only means more to you. Is that there can only be one authority in your life. Call that again whatever it is, but it's God. It's the thing that has your best interests at heart. That's for me what God is. The thing that cares most about me and that I get the most out of life. That it only wants the best for me. That's God. And anything else is an idol. And we have to smash it. We have to tear it down. We have to stop giving it power in our life. When Judaism says there can be only one God and you should have no other gods before me, that's what we need. Questions? Yeah. Yeah, bothers me too. Yeah. So I have to, I can only justify them by saying they spoke in the language of their day. So when I read Shakespeare, there are, there's, there's phraseology and idiom in Shakespeare that is totally lost on me. But in its day, it was tremendously funny, or so my English teacher tells me, right? Um, and so I have, I have to see this as, well, I, I see it in two ways. One, I see it as speaking in the idiom of its day. And I also see that human beings um, have evolved. We mature over time. So for me, the, the human beings that first set this down, that first wrote this, had a very immature uh, relationship with God, much like a parent and child relationship. 
And so when I talk to my children, and my children are eight and six and two and a half, um, though I try to always speak to them with kindness and with patience, it's not so easy. The kindness, I hope, the patience, not so much. Um, I use different language with them now than I will when they become a teenager, if they'll even listen to me when they're a teenager. Um, and I think that the way I understand this is that God was trying to, or the people that were writing this text, were trying to explain to an immature people, trying to get them to follow. And so they were, they were detailing things in very black and white terms. They were using fear and reward, which we use with children all the time, hopefully not fear. But you know the idea of punishment and reward. Um, but later on, as we mature, that, that doesn't ring true for us anymore. And we have to use uh, a more mature, a more sophisticated, a more developed language and methodology. And so as the text develops, um, and as we start to look at some other texts, you'll see, um, even in that last one that we just read, uh, it is um, more nuanced and hopefully more accessible. Yes? I think that it was, yes. Um, but again, I think it comes out of, uh, of a period when that that immature, undeveloped uh, God concept was, um, it was sort of the order of the day. That was how people operated. In the same way that I can look at the Bible in its time and see their, uh, you know, the, the stark terms that they use for adultery or for sexual uh, deviancy, or what they called it that. But in today, I, I absolutely can't look at it that way. I, I, I think that it was, it was maybe right then in that time but there's no way that it can be right for me today. You know, the, the idea of, of people having different sexual preferences and orientations or those kinds of things. So, um, just as society has eventually, thank God, matured on that, I, I think that, that our thinking has to mature, you know, as well. We have to kind of bring the Bible along with us for that. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is part of the struggle, right. Right, that, and so I get, thank you, Jenny, for that. Um, though the Ten Commandments were written in stone, and we can't change the original text, the Torah, the Bible, is a living document. It's meant to be used by human beings to find meaning. And so it has to evolve with time. The fundamental core principles of it can't change. We can't go from one God to multiple gods. That's why Judaism can't become Christianity. We can't go from one God to a trinity. This doesn't work in Judaism. It can work for others, but it can't work as a Jew. So those fundamental core values can't change, but the, the, the methods that we use to express those values, to arrive at those behaviors, that has to evolve. That has to respond to modernity. That has to speak in the language of the day. It's a great question. Um, and this isn't easy stuff. I mean, truly, I, I spend a lot of my time as a rabbi trying to make sense of things that, that just um, are not so simple, you know, that, that just bother me. They, they strike at the, at the core of what I think is right or wrong, you know, some of these, these old practices. And so that's why I'm a Reformed Jew, because some things I can set aside. And I can say, look, it was trying to be right for its day. 
Um, and if it was written today, it would have been written differently. The whole thing about homosexuality would have been written differently today, but back then they didn't understand. We're just starting to understand now. We've had the benefit of all of these years and all of this science and all of this experience. Um, we're just understanding now what they, they didn't understand then. But different rabbis would give you different answers. Not in this building, but in other buildings. Um, so let's look at part three. This whole idea of God wrestling. So if you turn to page three, letter B. So here we're talking about Jacob. Uh, whose name becomes, by the way, Yisrael. He becomes the one who struggles with God. The same night he arose... And he took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabuk, which is a river. After taking them across the stream, he sent across all of his possessions, and Jacob was left alone. And another, we don't know who or what this is, wrestled with him until the break of dawn. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he, this other thing, wrenched Jacob's hip at its socket so that the socket of his hip was strained as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, because the morning is coming, dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Said the other, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Jacob. Said he, you shall no longer be Jacob. Jacob, by the way, means the one that latches onto, that holds onto. But you should be Israel, for you have strived and you have struggled with beings divine and human, and you have prevailed. So this story is, is this wonderful allegory of a human being wrestling with an angel, or wrestling with God. Jacob is all alone in this moment, and he is struggling with, we could say, his demons. And they want to get a hold of him. They want to break him. And he fights back. And the struggle, though, here depicted as physical and external is, I think, an internal struggle with those things that would tear him down. And he wrestles and he wrestles and he wrestles. And at the end of the day, he gets rewarded for struggling. One of the things in Judaism, and I mentioned at the very beginning, is this struggle, that we celebrate the struggle. It, it is better to not have it worked out and to still be grappling with it than to be so sure and you've got it all worked out. I'm always nervous about people that say, I, you know, I have all the answers. I don't need to learn anymore. I don't have any more questions. This is just how it is. And that's how it's written in the Bible, and that's how I'm always going to look at it. What, what Jacob does here as a, as a model that we hold up as, a, as an ideal in Judaism is that he wrestles with the concepts and with things. And in this case, if you know the context of the story, Jacob is about to reunite with his brother Esau. And Esau is the one that he, Jacob has this fight with when they're young, steals his birthright, steals his father's blessing, which means he steals his inheritance. He steals all the money in the family. His mother was complicit in it. And Jacob leaves, runs away, and Esau, his brother, swears that he's going to kill Jacob the next time he sees him. And Jacob hears that Esau is just on the other side of the hill, and he's coming. And so Jacob separates his family from him, which is one of the first times that Jacob acts not in his own self-interest. 
this kid who only wanted his brother's birthright, who only wanted his brother's inheritance for himself, who was so self-centered, has this incredibly um, generous act where he looks out for his family before he looks out for himself. And he sends the possessions across the river, you know, not only the possessions, but he sends his, his, his children and his wives across the river where they'll be safe so that he can make, meet his brother one-on-one -on -one and hopefully spare them from the massacre that could be coming because Esau's not alone. Esau has an army of 700 with him. And that night, he struggles with, what am I going to say to my brother? What, you know, what's going to happen to me? He has a bad dream. This is a bad dream. And at the end of the day, well, we don't know what he resolves other than that whatever it was, this angel blesses him at the end. And says, because you struggled with this, you, you, you survived. You're, you're, you're deserving. And we only know what that outcome, we only know that he got it right in his struggle because of what happens next. Which is that Jacob meets Esau in this field with the 700 soldiers behind Esau and Jacob all by himself. And Jacob falls on his face, apologizing to his brother Esau. And Esau falls on Jacob. And what does he do? Do you remember from Sunday school? He kisses him and hugs him. Remember that story I told you about love? That it's in between, that God is in between the two people? And that's when we learned that what Jacob was struggling with. What was Jacob's, what was his dream about? What was he struggling with? How do I apologize to my brother? How do I, how do I face him? And what if he wants to do to me what I was trying to do to him? And Jacob essentially is resigned to that, and he says, I deserve it. If my brother, I hope my brother forgives me, but if he won't, here I am. But because there's contrition inside of him, and because he um, apologizes to Esau for what he did, falling upon the ground, Esau sees him for what he is. He sees him as his brother, as, you know, flesh of his flesh and blood of his blood and bone of his bone, uh, as it says in the text, and love conquers all, as the rock lyrics say, right? And he, uh, and he sees him as his brother and not as an enemy. And for me, it's one of the most beautiful stories about reconciliation that is also universal. Um, that we have to own our mistakes and we have to also see others as family as being imperfect. Forgive our siblings for the things that they did to us as they were growing and becoming as well. And forgive ourselves for the things we did to them. And when we do that, this is the message of the story, we become godlike. We have compassion. We are non-judgmental. We have empathy. We have forgiveness. All of those things that we hope God has for us. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Well, so now we're going back to, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. This one or Abraham before, right, right. They're all the same methodology for having, you know, created that. In terms of the way they created their religion, and it comes to this. And that's never happened ever. And today, if somebody got up in the mountains and said, you created a voice, we would say, well, that's nice, just keep it to yourself. So, yeah. You know, I'm just raising it from this whole thing again that, all, all, of the, all the major religions in the world claim this from the one God, and that's mm-hmm. the other thing. How is there more than one God? And, and, it, and, and it seems to be the same process. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, one of the things I, 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 I don't have much knowledge on of this area, but on the, on, of course, you know, on the Christian side, most Christians believe and don't understand the story of the Virgin Mary and mm-hmm. the resurrection. Like their own, well, it wasn't. There was those stories of, you know, where it was common thousands of years ago in India around the Mediterranean. Well, just as you say, that these stories are. Right. And and, and these stories are not unique. I mean, these are the Jewish stories, but the template of these stories is not unique. There's other stories out there like this. So, So, and that's why I dismiss the historical value of this and go to the narrative value. And so, what can we learn from this? So I would challenge this, this, uh, this statement that, that if that people don't hear God's voice. I think we actually hear it all the time in our lives. We just might not attribute it to God. We call it our conscience, right? But what is God's voice? Again, if I define God as good orderly direction, G-O-D, good orderly direction, then God's voice is that right thing. To quote the great Rabbi Spike Lee, to do the right thing. So God's voice is that meme, that thing that says, I know, or I want to know, what is right here. We might not always know what it is, and that's where study comes in. And that is calling me to do this. That is calling me to get out of this relationship, or to get out of this job, or to tell the truth in this instance, or to to, to reconcile with this person. What's telling you to do that? Where did that come from? When you're doing one thing your whole life, or in that moment, and all of a sudden you realize, that's the wrong thing. I should be doing this. What tells you that? For me, that's God. And it didn't come, it didn't come just from my reasoning. I think that's to give myself too much credit from my own knowledge, what we would say in Yiddish, our own, my own sechel, my own wisdom. It, it, there was something else there. Um, maybe it came from my learning and uh, putting those things together. Yeah. No, I don't think it was coincidental at all. I think it was. I, I think it was rather prudent. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 
Mm. So I don't understand mm -hmm. uh, why it's one big thing to make it not. However, we I will make of you a great nation. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. Those who curse you, I will curse. Mm -hmm. So it's I, I think that it's possible to take the second point first about is this Abraham's ego. But if we accept the, 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 if we accept the narrative um, context, okay, and again, I'm not saying this is historically accurate, but if we accept the parameters of the story, Abraham had everything to lose by leaving his father's house and nothing to gain. So if we accept biblical society as it was, he was leaving food, water, shelter, and going into the wilderness where there was no guarantee of food, water, shelter, and only roving bands that would attack and destroy him. You didn't pick up and leave. This is why excommunication was such a terrible thing in biblical times, because when they kicked you out of the tent, you were alone in the wilderness, and there wasn't a 7-Eleven, there wasn't a supermarket, there wasn't a policeman, there was nothing to protect you. So to pick up and leave was not, I don't think, an act of ego, um, but rather an, ex an extreme act of faith that the voice that, that was calling him, the thing that was inside of him or that he was hearing that said, this is not a good place for you, in spite of all that, you, that it has to offer you, you've got to get out of here. Um, I heard an interesting definition of the word ego once, when our ego takes over for us, and I like these things. So if God is good orderly direction, ego, E-G-O, is edging God out, pushing God out, allowing ourselves to take over. Pushing that good orderly direction out and saying, no, I know better. And sometimes we do, sometimes what we know as better is, is, you know, is entirely wholesome and right and, and good, and that, but then that's not ego. That is, I think, um, you know, maybe a sense of altruism, perhaps. Um, so I don't, I don't see this as you know, him trying to make himself grand, but rather really risking for what he thinks is right. Maybe. Okay, I don't know. Um, okay, so let's, let's, let's move on a little bit. How are we on time? I wasn't looking. Me too. So we're supposed to end at 9.30, right? So we'll, we'll go for a few more minutes and we'll take a break. Um, we'll, we'll skip letter C and we'll, we'll move on to part four. Where is God and when is God? So page four, letter D. A person once asked Rabbi Joshua ben Korah. So these, when we say a person asked this rabbi or that rabbi, these are um, modern Jewish scholars. By modern, I mean um, after the year 200 CE, the common era. Jews refer to, to time as CE and BCE. BCE, before the common era, before the year zero, not that there was a year zero, and CE, the common era, the period that we're in now, as opposed to AD and BC, or BC and AD, for obvious reasons, since we don't count by Jesus' life, there's not before Christ and after death, okay? So in, uh, so whatever, 200, 300 uh, CE, a person once asked Rabbi Joshua Menkoch, why did God choose a thorn bush from which to speak to Moses? This rabbi answered, to teach you that no place is devoid of God's presence, not even a thorn bush. 
that we can find God's source, God's voice, in, in all sorts of places. And even in the most uh, seemingly um, unholy of things, we can find God's voice. For me, the best example of this, I'll come to you in one second. What's that? No, no, I'm not trying to say that, but that where we might be, if you go down to the downtown east side, that could be a tremendously spiritual experience. To see the, the brokenness of human beings, to see the, 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 the complete lack, or no, not complete lack, but the, the way that we go about our lives while there is this in the world. The, the disregard that society shows for so many. And so God can speak to us in that moment. We could be down in the downtown east side and hear a call in our soul, in the essence of who we are, that says, I've got to do something about this. It's not right for me to live in a world when there are people hungry and sleeping on the street, and I have so much. You can, you can experience a God moment, what we call a God shot, in, in those places. You don't have to only find God in that room. In fact, I think it's the hardest place to find God is in a church, a cathedral, a synagogue, a sanctuary where we're not exposed to the rest of the world. In fact, any Jewish synagogue that you walk into is required to have seven windows, at least seven windows in its sanctuary. Because we're not allowed to pray in a place that's closed off to the rest of the world. You have to be able to see the world outside so that it informs your prayers because your prayers are supposed to lead to your actions. So no, I don't think we can find God in money, per se. That, that's not... Um, what I'm trying to say, but we can find God in, in the rough places, in, in the darkness. Letter E. When a person is mean and does things which are not correct, his actions remove him from the Shekhinah, from the divine presence, from God's, um, we call the Shekhinah often God's maternal presence. We become distant from God. As it is said, your sins have separated between you and your God. But when a person does good and pursues here Torah studies, his actions bring him closer to God, closer to the Shekinah. How is this true in your life as you understand God? How is it true that when you do wrong or hurtful things, it removes you from a sense of the holy, from your spiritual core? And how is it that when you do good, you feel closer to that core? Anybody have an example of this? Anybody ever experienced this? Do you know this to be true, or is this false? It's true, right? When we do good, we feel good. When we do good, we feel like we're worthy, that we, 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 we've, we've earned the blessing of being created, of being in this relationship with another person. And when we treat those things, those relationships, for, we take them for granted, or we treat them badly, or we treat the people that love us with disregard, or contempt, or you know, um, unbridled anger, rage, whatever you call it, we, we've removed ourselves from God. We've removed ourselves from that, from the purpose for which we were created, which is to be, to be an, an extension of God, an extension of goodness in the world and the lives of others. So that's all that this text is saying, and that could be the barometer for us. Am I acting like I would want God to act in this time? And we talk about the golden rule, right, which is important here also. We'll talk about it next week. But 
So the golden rule in Christianity is, and I'm not judging either, it's just formulated differently in Judaism. The golden rule in Christianity is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's framed in the positive. And there's lots of benefits to that. In Judaism, we frame it the other way. We say the golden rule in Judaism is do not do unto another person, do not do to another person that which you would not want done to yourself. And the reflexive nature, the reflective, excuse me, nature of that is to say, how would I feel if somebody treated me that way? the way that I'm considering treating that person. You know, which I think is, a, is, is an act of empathy. It requires us to put ourselves in that person's shoes to project, oh, that would, that would be bad. And so therefore, I, I shouldn't do that. Uh, letter G. One day, a man found his grandson sitting all alone, crying. What's wrong, my boy, the man said, asked. Oh, Zadie, Zadie is the Yiddish term for grandpa. Oh, grandpa, the boy said, looking up. I was playing hide and go seek. I was hiding, but no one was seeking me. God feels the same way, the man said. And the two of them cried together. There's another story, one of my favorites, about a boy and his father who were in a wagon. And they're traveling to market, and along the side of the road are berries. And his son says to him, Daddy, there's, there's berries by the side. Can we stop, and can I pick them? I love berries. And the father looks at his watch, or he looks at the son. I don't know if they had watches back then. <clears throat> and he realizes, well, they have time before they get to where they're going. So he stops the wagon, the boy gets out, and he starts picking berries. And then the father realizes, well, they've got to get going, or they're never going to get to where they need to go. But the boy's having such a good time. He says, I don't want to leave, Daddy. He says, fine, I'm going to continue the wagon down the road, and you keep picking berries, but keep walking as you do it. And every now and then, call out my name. And if you hear my reply, then you know we're in close enough proximity to each other, and you can keep, keep picking berries where you are. But if you don't hear my reply, run as fast as you can, calling my name until you hear me. And this is the analogy for how it is sometimes with us with God. Sometimes it is with us with that person that we intended to be, or that we know that we were created to be, but that we aren't quite yet, that we become distant from that, and sometimes we become so far away from that, that we can't even hear the echo of that voice that's calling us back to be the thing that we, we always intended to be. But your being here tonight, for whatever reason it was that you came, I see as, uh, in part, a, a, a hearing of the echo of that voice, a calling out because you want meaning in your life. Maybe you just want understanding about Judaism because you're curious about it, and, and that's fine too. I don't mean to overblow why you showed up tonight. But for some, maybe you came because you were looking for you know, um, some kind of a spiritual explanation, some more meaning in your life. And we just need to keep doing this. And whether it's here or at a church or at a mosque or whatever it is, to continue to call out that is the Jewish, that's, the, that, that's one of the Jewish commandments is to just keep asking the question, God, where are you, and where am I in relation to you? Where are you, and where am I in relation to you? That's spirituality. I mean, that to me is religion. That's what it's all about. And how do I get from where I am to where I want to be? If Judaism has something to offer you to do that, great. 
Here's a taste of it. If Christianity has something, or another religion, or um, another philosophy in your life, then take it. But if we just stand still, the, the wagon is going down the road. We're moving away. It's moving away from us. So um, I'll end with this last one, and then we'll, um, we'll take a break, um, have a snack, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, so one of the things that we're doing here tonight is this letter J. It's a, a teaching from uh, one of the Jewish ethical texts. Um, and it says that when two people sit together and study Torah, when two people sit together and struggle with God, God is present there. So when we do stuff like this in Judaism, this is prayer. And we have prayer also, and we have songs, and we have poems, and all of that. But when we do this, this is prayer too. Because this will hopefully lead us to be better people which is the whole point of it, is to just be better people and better towards each other and to make the world a better place. Any questions before we eat a little bit? Anybody want to run for the doors? <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody. Let's take a break for about 15 minutes or so, and then we'll, we'll do some more. By the way, if you need the washrooms, they're out and to the left, and then through the door to the right. If you go out these double doors, they're just to the right.
So can I, um, can I interrupt you in your eating to do a little bit more with you and then, um, and then to wrap up for our evening? Um, so I want to, um, I, I want, you can keep eating and, and, as, we're, as we're doing this for sure, but I want to I touch on one more, one more theme, um, which we've kind of glanced against, but it's important, and that's the role of, of evil or sin, of evil or sin in Judaism. Because it comes up as we talk about God as um, the mean, as God as the, as the compass point that we're striving towards good, but what about bad? What about when we miss, what about when we intentionally are not good? What about when we intentionally take advantage of or um, you know, do, the, do the wrong thing, do the bad thing? Uh, so. So Judaism certainly has a concept of sin, um, and it's, it's important in Judaism to, 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 to recognize that we have sin and we have repentance for sin. Um, many of you might have heard of the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. Um, it's the Jewish day of repentance, and for some, they hear of it and they say, okay, once a year Jews apologize for all the bad things that they did. And it's true, once a year we do, but really the, the Jewish concept is that every day you are supposed to account for your actions. In fact, our tradition teaches that you're supposed to repent. It's a terrible word, but you're supposed to make amends and repair, it's a better word, the wrongs that you've done the day before you die. And since we don't know the day that we're going to die, we're supposed to do that every single day. And it actually has a technical terminology and it's called tshuva. We'll talk about it more next week. But tshuva means to turn around, to change your direction in life. But I want to look at just a couple of texts with you. Um, Judaism doesn't believe that human beings were created with original sin. They don't believe that we were created broken or unworthy. In fact, just the opposite, human beings were created, in Hebrew we say kadai, we were created worthy. Human beings were created that selim Elohim, every human being, uh, if you read here part five, part V, the human being, letter A, we are created in God's image. This is page five, letter A. We are created in God's image, and God made man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female, God created them. The language here is a little tricky, but the concept, I hope, is clear. That human beings were created in God's image. Um, and therefore, we are extensions of God in the world. We are fine. We are perfect as we are. But we have within us uh, an inclination, a desire, that when not kept in check can be seen as an inclination towards bad or evil. And that desire is, um, is competitiveness. That desire is desire in and of itself. It's the want, the, the need to acquire, to do, to build. And our tradition even says, there's a text here um, that I'll, I'll read for you, um, on another page another time, that um, were it not for that inclination, no one would ever plant a field, build a house, or have a child. That if we didn't have this desire to acquire and to get, then you wouldn't have businesses, you wouldn't have industry, you wouldn't have you know, crops and, and all these things because we, we need to leave our mark. There the ego comes in that we were talking about before. We need to, we need to do and make a, a place for ourselves and make a stand. But we know that if that is not kept within some boundaries, then it becomes 
the excessiveness that uh, overwhelms and takes over and then can take over us and can become that, that idol that we worship, the need for more and more and more and more and more. But a little bit more, well, that moves you along in life. So it's, it's that careful um, metering of that, of, that, of that desire. And when we allow that desire to, be, to, to go beyond the limits, that is sin in Judaism. So sin is natural in the sense that it's, it's, it's right there within us all the time, you know, um, and it can be used as a force for good or a force for bad. Any questions about that? So letter C on page 5. People sin, but we are not sinners. Repentance is built into the system. Rabbi Abahu said, Great is repentance, for it preceded the creation of the world. As it is said, before the mountains were brought forth, thou turnest men to contrition. We are not perfect. We will lose the meter on that inclination, that desire. And so therefore, we have the ability to apologize. And not just apologize, but the ability to repair. And that is just the way of the world. We don't try to be perfect. Nobody can be. Judaism does not expect perfection. We expect to struggle with trying to be perfect. We expect to strive for perfection and then to correct our errors along the way towards perfection. And the people that do that in Judaism, the, the, the people that, that sin and then repent for that sin, repair the wrong with real intention, not just, the, not just to say, I'm going to sin, and then I'm going to say I'm sorry, and I'm going to sin again and say I'm sorry, but really, really mean it, and really try not to repeat that same act again, and really struggle with it. That is who we elevate as the, the, great, the greats and the righteous in Jewish tradition. Not, not saints. We have no saints. But those that struggle with it are what we consider to be the heroes. So the bottom of page five, number three. I don't know why I stopped using letters here at some point. But, um, God says to the Israelites, I created within you the inclination to do evil, the Yetzer Hara, but I created the Torah with which to season it. I would use the word to meter it. As long as you occupy yourselves with Torah, the Yetzer Hara will not rule over you. And this is where study comes in. Talk about Judaism as a tradition that um, is not so much emphasized on prayer. Prayer is not the primary expression of Jewishness. Though Jews will go to synagogue and they will worship and they'll spend time in synagogue, the primary expression of Jewishness is through study, because study leads to doing. And so we're given Torah, we're given these texts and the ones that we'll look at next week as a way to um, to again, to temper that Yetzer Hara, to help you know, steer our, the course of our soul. And here on page six was that uh, quote that I sort of uh, paraphrased for you. Without, evil impulse, without the evil impulse, man would feel no satisfaction in his labor and no joy in his Torah. Without it, there would be no progeny and no increase. It is needed in the world just as much as rain, for it can be subdued and made subject to deeds of purity. 
Intention is nothing. Action is everything in Judaism. You're not judged on what you think. In Jewish tradition, it's all about what you do. You can have crazy thoughts. And as long as you keep them to yourself, <laughs> that's fine. And at the end of the day, God judges us on what we do. There's a tradition in Judaism we, we talk about. So when we die, God asks you a question. You go, when you die, you go before God as a judge. And do you know the first question that God asks you? No, you wouldn't. I haven't taught it to you yet. The first question that God asks you is, were you honest in your business dealings? Not did you keep kosher, not did you go to a synagogue, you know, not did you light the Shabbat candles, but were you honest in your business dealings? Why that question? What does that question say? And, what, and so what does being honest in your, good, in your business dealings, how does it, how your fellow man? We are judged on our actions towards others, first and foremost. Not even on our actions towards God, which would be going to the synagogue or lighting Shabbat candles or eating kosher. This has nothing to do with another person. We are judged on our action towards others. So the last little bit here, and then I'd like to take you into the other room, um, from which you will return. <laughs> uh, so just a word about prayer. Prayer connects with the transcendent. Prayer connects with the transcendent. There should have been a period there. Prayer goes beyond the particular words. It includes the music, the community, and the memories. Prayer is... To pray is to, in Hebrew we say, lehikael, to judge oneself. Prayer is a conversation. We're going to talk more about prayer next week. But prayer is a conversation with ourselves. When we pray... In my idea of prayer, I'm not praying to God. I'm praying through God. And it gets filtered through God and it comes back to me. Ultimately, I'm praying to myself. But hopefully, it goes through this filter. God puts God's stamp on it, God's insight on it. It runs through this filter of Jewish tradition that we just studied, and it comes back to me as an insight or as an action to do. Prayer is judgment of ourselves. Prayer is a petition or a praise. And again, this might go unanswered. I don't personally believe in a God that is going to act upon what I am saying. But my prayer might cause me to act upon it or cause others to act upon it. Or cause all of us in hearing our prayers to say we need to do something about this. And we're inspired by what God wants of us. So if I pray to end homelessness in the world, what good is that prayer? Is that going to end homelessness? Is God going to come down and give everybody a place to live and a secure income? I don't believe that. Our tradition doesn't believe that. Pray as though everything depended upon God. This is the bumper sticker, right? Act as though everything depends upon you. And that's the Jewish view of prayer. Prayer is the, is the motivational speech that gets you to do the thing that only you can do. Prayer combines two other concepts. Uh, keva and Kavanah. These are two Hebrew terms. <clears throat> keva is the fixed method of prayer. The, 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 the sequence, the, um, the regularness of it. 
Kavanah is the intention. The best example I can give you is if you have a workout routine, if you go to the gym, right? So part of working out is just going to the gym, just showing up. Woody Allen said 98% of life is just showing up. So part of it is just showing up at the gym and getting on the treadmill. But we know that that is insufficient if you don't start to run on the treadmill. And if you only run like this, which is kind of how I like to run on the treadmill, <laughs> you're not getting all out of it. You have to have the intention to do what you're there to do. That is prayer in Judaism, keva and kavanah. You have to show up. You have to go to the synagogue on a regular basis. You have to be around others as you pray. But when you're there, you have to pour your heart into it. You have to have the intention. You have to have a mission. You have to have an agenda. What did, what did the, the Blues Brothers say when they walked into the door of the church in the movie, right? We're here on a mission from God. So walk into the synagogue with your own mission. I am here to get this accomplished in my life or in our world. I am here to work this out. I am here, and this is what I'm here to do. Keva and Kavanah. Showing up, showing up with intention. So I want to end with, uh, with uh, three words of blessing. <clears throat> Letters B, C, and D. <clears throat> so first of all, we just ate. And one of the things in Judaism that we have is we have blessings. We have a lot of blessings. We have blessings for everything. And what is a blessing? A blessing is to acknowledge the miracle of this thing, acknowledge the specialness of this thing. So we just ate cookies and cakes. I ate a few more than I should have. God didn't make the cookies. Mary made some of the cookies. Sometimes I think Mary's good. Solly made the cookies. Solly's. Okay. But God made the grain from which the cookies were then baked. So we thank God for the raw ingredients. And in doing so, we acknowledge that we have to take those raw ingredients and partnering with God, we can create something out of the raw ingredients. So the blessing that Jews have over food is a blessing over bread, not a blessing over grain. And I love this distinction. We bless the product of God and human beings' partnership of taking grain and our own human intuition or, in, or uh, inventiveness and making something out of it. So we say in Hebrew, and I'll, I'll translate it for you, Baruch atah Adonai, blessed are you Adonai, blessed are you God, Eloheinu melech haolam, the, the, the creator or the ruler of all things in the world, of the cosmos and the universe. Hamotzi lecha min who brings forth bread from the earth, who we, in partnership with, take your raw materials and make something out of it. And that's the blessing that Jews say over food. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lecha min blessed are you God, who helps us bring forth bread from the earth. The second prayer is a prayer for us just being here. And it's, a, it's called the Shehechianu, which means to have been delivered. And we say this at special occasions, and this is a special occasion. I just thank you for coming. It really is just partly just showing up. For whatever your reasons were around the table that you came, I hope that you got a little something out of it. I hope that you come back, because we've got two more nights. 
But I realize that you might not. You might got a taste of Jesus and this doesn't taste good for you. I accept that. I just thank you for coming and giving me the opportunity and us the opportunity to, to we haven't really had much of a dialogue. I was kind of hoping you were going to talk more. But um, us the opportunity to, to get to know each other a little bit. And maybe you'll come back on your own another time or call me, Rabbi, I have a question. So for just showing up, Baruch atah Adonai, blessed are you Adonai. Blessed are you God. Eloheinu melech ha'olam, the creator of the universe. Shehechianu, who has given us life. Vehigianu, who has helped us to arrive. Shehechianu v'kiyamanu, excuse me, Shehechianu, I don't usually do it this way. Shehechianu v'kiyamanu v'higianu l'azman hazeh, who has given us life, who has sustained us, and who has enabled us to arrive at this time, at this place, at this moment. For whatever it was that caused you to read that ad in the, in the Georgia Strait and actually pick up the phone and answer it and then show up, I'm thankful for that. I hope at the end of the night you're thankful for it too. And then the last one um, is uh, it's not so much a prayer but a proclamation. It's on page 7. Um, and it is um, the Shema, which is the, the, the sort of that we call it the watchword of the Jewish people the proclamation that there is only one God. So we've talked about God tonight. And that whatever your definition of God is when you came in, and if it's the same or if it's been enhanced or improved upon in some way tonight, this statement is a realization that there can only be one God in your life. That we can't have idols. That we can't make our job, our money, our relationship, or whatever it is, a God in our life. That it has to be that thing that is, in, that, that is always looking out for us, that wants the best for us. That power. And there's only one. And so we say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, hear, O Israel, hear the people. There is only one God, and that God is one. For me, I understand that to mean that there is God in everything the unity of God. That there is God in, in holiness, if we want to describe it that way, in what we're doing here. And there can be God in the work that you do. And there can be God in your relationship. And there can be God in your hobbies, in your interests, if you find the goodness in it. If you find the G-O-D, the good orderly direction in that thing, the purpose, the meaning. We started with meaning, we'll end with meaning you find the meaning in what you're doing. So I'd like to just give you a quick geographical tour of the synagogue. If you'll come with me, you can bring your papers or leave them. You can leave your bags. Nobody's going to take it. So just come on in. You can sit, you can stand, however you'd like. If you do decide to join us, uh, either 
next Friday night or on a Friday night or a Saturday morning. We have services at 10 a.m. on Saturdays. You don't have to be Jewish to come to a synagogue. You, everybody is welcome at any time. Um, really, we are happy to have you. Um, yes? So most of the services are in Hebrew, but hopefully with enough English explanation that you understand in broad terms at least what we're talking about. And when we refer to a prayer, we have a prayer book. When we, when we pray in the, in the synagogue or when Jews are at prayer, we have a prayer book. And that prayer book has both Hebrew and English in it. Has, a, has the Hebrew written in Hebrew letters, has the Hebrew written in English letters, which are called transliteration. And it has a translation uh, of the prayer from Hebrew into English. Uh, yes? Not in our synagogue. In some synagogues, women and men sit separately. This is a, that is a more traditional practice from the idea that men would become easily distracted, which is true, um, and that it would be easier for us to focus if we weren't distracted. Um, but in our synagogue, I won't say that men don't get easily distracted, but we like families to sit together. And so men and women sit together. The other thing that you'll notice when you get a prayer book in a synagogue is that um, Jewish books, because they're often in Hebrew, open from left to right. So our books, it's fairly obvious there's a cover on this side and not on this side, but they open from left to right. Um, so sometimes people come in and they have it upside down, but you'll figure it out eventually. Um, and that's because Hebrew was read from right to left. So you want the text on the center and going that way. Uh, or on the, out, the, out, the right side margin. I just want to sort of tell you what you're looking at. So this platform here is called the Bima. Bima means platform or elevation. It's, it, historically, it had a purpose, which was, if you go all the way back to the times of the Bible, there was an elevated platform where sacrifices were made in the biblical temple. We don't make sacrifices anymore. Uh, we haven't done it for a very, very long time. We, um, we have barbecues occasionally, but no sacrifices. Uh, but we've kept that symbolism. Uh, one, because most synagogues have some sort of homage to the biblical places of worship. And also because there's a lot of practicality with it. If I stand here, it's easier to see me. And without any mechanical projection, it's also easier to hear me. On the Bima, on this platform, there is in every synagogue some kind of structure on its eastern wall usually that contains within it the Torah scrolls. Just to get you to come back next week, I'm not going to show them now. But next week we'll look at them. Um, but in this, in this cabinet um, are the, the scrolls, the Hebrew books of the Bible. And many synagogues have more than one. We have five or six in here. Um, I know how many we have, but I think we, we have one that's out on loan to somebody right now. Um, and so that's a, that's a central feature in a synagogue. Above it is a light that hopefully never goes out. Ours is electric, so it shouldn't, and I think it has a battery backup. It's called an eternal light. In Hebrew, it's called the ner tamid. The light is symbolic of God's presence. That in the Bible, there is the story of the Israelites when they were walking in the desert. And they were guided at night by a fire and that day by a cloud. And that was the sign of God's presence. <clears throat> when they settled, they would kindle a flame. 
that flame, that light would be a symbol of God's presence. It would also maybe be used, the light from that flame might be used for the sacrifices that were performed. If you know the story of Hanukkah and that candelabra of the eight-branch candelabra, or nine if you count the one in the center, um, that was connected to this idea of the, of the eternal light. It was actually seven branches at the time, and that was the eternal flame that was lit and always burning. So every synagogue will have this eternal light, and it's so that when there's nobody here in the room, we still acknowledge, because the Torah is here, we still acknowledge God's presence. In the same way, I think similar, and I think they got it from us, that you know, some um, national figures might have an eternal light uh, that's burning at a graveside or something like that. Again, coming from the United States, John F. Kennedy's grave has a, has a flame that's always burning. And it's the idea that this person is not forgotten because flames need to be tended. It's a bit of a cheating to use an electric lamp. The idea was it's an oil lamp, and if you had to constantly go in and tend it, like if the constantly go in and water a plant, that means you're paying attention to it. It's not forgotten or forsaken. <clears throat> Other things that you'll notice uh, in this space, on the wall over there, you see these brass plaques. They have names on them, and some of them have little light bulbs next to them <coughs> that are lit. They actually all have light bulbs next to them. This is a memorial wall. A thing that's very important in Judaism, and I'm sure it's important in every tradition, is to remember our deceased loved ones. These are names of some of the people in our congregation that have died, those whose families chose to memorialize them by putting their name on the wall. And the lights next to those names are people for whom the anniversary of their death is this week. And so at the end of our service, we will read their names before we say a memorial prayer. And our congregation's been around for 50 years. It's a lot of names. It's 50 or 60 names every week. Not all of those are on the wall. Um, and we say in Jewish tradition that a person's, after a person dies, we say that their memory should be for a blessing. That's sort of what it says up on the top of there. The memory of the righteous is to be a blessing. And what we mean by that is when you remember somebody, that's a blessing in your life. Because when you remember them, it teaches you something. We remember not only their name, but what they did, what they stood for. And in that way, that becomes a lesson in our life, a teaching in our life. Um, other things that you'll see here, this um, in, the, in the glass box over here is actually our Hanukkah that we light during the holiday of Hanukkah. Um, we'll talk a little about Hanukkah at our third session, um, but most synagogues have some sort of large candelabra for that holiday to help use as a ritual object. Our synagogue has, sanctuary has a piano in it, some synagogues don't use instruments as part of their worship. Ours does occasionally, um, but uh, some don't because the aesthetic is a little too mechanical um, and they want to keep it um, you know, sort of more organic. Um, but music is a very important thing in Jewish worship in general and particularly in a Reformed synagogue where music breaks down the barriers of not knowing the language. So you can sing something a lot easier than you can read something, even if it's in a different language. And music, which for anybody who likes music you know, can, can transform, can transcend, I should say. Music can get, can, get over, can get an idea across that words never could, just because you can get lost in the melody of it. Uh, and so we use music a lot to help us get into that mood or that mode of the kavanah. You know, you're on the treadmill, and the music, just like if you're at the gym, gets you to do the workout, gets you to run faster because you're playing whatever that 
song is. That's your workout jam. So music is our prayer jam, if we can do it that way. Uh, I think that that is essentially the sanctuary. Um, I would uh, just mention that um, when people come into a sanctuary, men, it's customary in our synagogue to wear a yarmulke, a head covering. People always want to know two things. One, why we wear them, and two, how I keep it on my head, since I have nothing to clip it to. So the answer to the second question is double sticky tape. Or have I a secret? The yarmulke symbolizes, we talked about God before, and this is good to end on this. The yarmulke symbolizes that God is always watching what I do, that I live my life on camera, that God is above and sees everything that I do. There's no hiding. I might think that I'm getting away with something, but I'm not. If I think I am, I'm only lying to myself and lying to God. And so that is, again, that influence of trying to keep me towards a life of meaning and not foolishness or wastefulness. To use the time that I've been given, for all of us is a finite time, and for most of us we have no idea how long that is, to use it for the very best purposes that I can in the time that I have. That is the purpose of being a human being. And as a Jew, I understand that to be my prime directive, to quote Spock, that the purpose for my being. Yes? Why don't women or why do they? So it wasn't necessary for women to wear them. Um, this, this is a symbolic custom. It's not commanded. It's, it's a custom that the Jews have adopted as a reminder of this idea of God's presence. Women have other things that remind them of God's presence. And if you go, if you look at that through a traditional Jewish lens, the thing that reminds them of God's presence is their children. If you'll hang on just one second. Sandy? I'll, I'll call you right back. I'm just finishing the class. I'll call you back in 10 minutes, okay? I think. Sorry. Another session after this. Um, so women didn't need this physical reminder because the reminder of the, of the miracle of creation was often hanging on to their leg or being held tight to their, to their, to their chest. Yes? So in Jewish tradition, that, that was uh, not the norm, not the expectation. Now, so this is, again, this is historical. This is dated. It's not modern thinking. It's not the thinking of this congregation. So many women today wear a yarmulke or some form of a head covering for its same purpose. Some wear it just at prayer, some wear it outside. Others wear other symbols, and other Jews who don't wear yarmulkes wear other symbols, again, to remind them of their responsibility that there's no hiding. They might wear a Jewish star or some other type of amulet. Um, they, some, you might see Orthodox Jews who wear fringes um, beneath their garments. They usually often wear a yarmulke as well. All of that, again, is a reminder. And some say, I don't need a physical reminder. It's inside of me, or it's a reminder because of what I read every day or how I pray every day, and I need to wear something to do it. Again, all of this is a matter of preference, in my opinion, for what works for you that will ultimately get you to the place that you want to be, you know, which is that better version of yourself. Any other final questions? Yes. So the other question was about a talit, <coughs> or a prayer shawl. Thank you. I mentioned the fringes below the garment. You'll also come into the synagogue, and on a Friday night, um, or in an evening service, I should say, you'll see the rabbi 
wearing, or the people that are leading the prayer, uh, it can not only be a rabbi, but some other members of our clergy, will wear um, a, um, a garment like this, and we wear it in this way. And on, during the morning worship services, either on Shabbat, on Saturdays, or during the week, because Jews pray every day, um, they will wear this as well. Men and women wear it. The fringes are called tzitzit. And if you look closely at them, they are, there's a lot of knots and twists and turns there in the way that they're stitched, the way that they're tied together, I should say. I know you can't all see this. But I feel like I'm accomplishing something just by walking around showing it to some of you. Um, they are symbolic of all the commandments in the Torah. We're going to talk about commandments next week. But Judaism counts 613 commandments in the Torah, 613 rules that we have to follow, not 10. Any close reading of the Bible notes that there are more than 10 times when God says, do this or don't do that. And we count all of those. And this is a reminder of all of those commandments. In fact, if you were to add up all of the knots and twists and turns and the fringes, it would equal 613. So some traditions have worry beads, some have prayer beads, Jews have tzitzit. All serve the same purpose. Don't forget what your prime directives are. Don't forget what the rules are. Don't forget what's expected of you. Any other questions? I think we're right on time. I hope we are. Yeah. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for coming again. I think there's still more cookies, so please don't go home hungry. My mother would kill me if you went home hungry. Um, a huge thank you to Mary Cohen uh, and Mike Cohen. Uh, Mary is our, our outreach coordinator, and she helped put all of this together. She's the one that you talked to on the phone um, when you signed up for the class. And a wonderful thank you to our, uh, our ambassadors that are here. Um, uh, to, to Sandy and to Annette and to Jenny. And did I miss anybody? Is that Mary didn't make it, but maybe she'll be here next time. Um, they are uh, not only at your tables, but hopefully available to you at the, at the schmoozing time or whenever, if you should see them, if you should come here again um, to answer questions and to just help you if you've got things you want to find out about. Uh, and I'm available to you, too, as well. I'll, I'll share with you next week some ways to communicate with me if anybody has questions that you wanted to ask but not in a room filled with people. Again, we invite you to join us for dinner uh, and for services on the 21st of February. Um, it's a 6.30 service followed. It's a really fun musical service, about 45 minutes long, maybe an hour if I talk too long, uh, followed by a dinner afterwards. Um, and we hope you'll join us for that. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Namaste. Or now I'm going to go. <laughs> now I'm going to go. <laughs> What's it Namaste. I, I, I know I've known it. Peace be upon you. you as you honor me. Well, thank you. Thank you, Melanie. You're welcome. Okay, good. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. No, there is. There's a question. Yeah, yeah. And we meet again next Wednesday at 7.30, and then the Wednesday to follow. Yeah. So, you say 
what I struggled with growing mm -hmm. up in terms of what's written mm -hmm. versus the interpretation. Right. And so when you say the 600 written words, well, okay, half an hour ago, well, you know, it's... So <laughs> next week you'll hear me explain that of those rules, there's two categories. There's those commandments which are moral, ethical, and those that are s symbolic, spiritual. The moral, ethical, we have no choice in. The symbolic, spiritual, you know, it's like what music motivates you on, in the, on the treadmill at the gym. And with those, we in this congregation and even down the street at the conservative synagogue say, yes, you do have choice. Mm -hmm. Some of those speak to us, you know, I like to say the tradition, in its day, tradition uh, was right for its day, and in, its, in, in, in my day, I'm right for my day. Yeah. The tradition has a vote, but not a veto in my life. Yeah. No, I do. I really uh, enjoy the interpretation. Well, thanks, thanks, Katie. I, I, uh, I find growing up, I never heard of it. Right. Yeah, I think it's probably a little both. I'm not saying anything new. Um, maybe you know, a little some stuff. But um, but well, thank you. Um, but you know, we can't say this when you're that was not ago. <laughs> um, you know, but when you're nine, ten years old, you can't talk about God like this. I mean, it's hard enough to do it in a room filled with adults. All the time. About what? Everything, all the time. So every week we have a, uh, a Torah study group here that talks about the weekly Torah portion and it comes into these concepts all the time. We have classes. When I give a sermon, there's usually a discussion portion of that sermon. Certainly on the Saturday morning there is. Friday night sometimes it's more of, a, of, a, of an oratory. Eh, it's just it's a bigger room, bigger show. Um, but you know, there's discussion all the time. Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. Well, come again. Come again. Sorry. Thank you very much. That was really, really intense. You're very welcome. Thank, Thank you, you for much. coming. We'll see you next that week. That was lovely. Thank you. Thank really you for coming. I'm so glad. Thank you. Thank you. Any internet sites you'd recommend? Um, yeah, myjewishlearning.com.
because the aesthetic is a little too mechanical um, and they want to keep it um, you know, sort of more organic. Um, but music is a very important thing in Jewish worship in general and particularly in a Reformed synagogue where music breaks down the barriers of not knowing the language. So you can sing something a lot easier than you can read something, even if it's in a different language. And music, which for anybody who likes music you know, can, can transform, can transcend, I should say. Music can get, can, get over, can get an idea across that words never could, just because you can get lost in the melody of it. Uh, and so we use music a lot to help us get into that mood or that mode of the kavanah. You know, you're on the treadmill, and the music, just like if you're at the gym, gets you to do the workout, gets you to run faster because you're playing whatever that song is that's your workout jam. So music is our prayer jam, if we can do it that way. Uh, I think that that is essentially the sanctuary. Um, I would uh, just mention that um, when people come into a sanctuary, men, it's customary in our synagogue to wear a yarmulke, a head covering. People always want to know two things. One, why we wear them, and two, how I keep it on my head, since I have nothing to clip it to. So the answer to the second question is double sticky tape. Everybody's secret. The yarmulke symbolizes, we talked about God before, and this is good to end on this. The yarmulke symbolizes that God is always watching what I do, that I live my life on camera, that God is above and sees everything that I do. There's no hiding. I might think that I'm getting away with something, but I'm not. If I think I am, I'm only lying to myself and lying to God. And so that is, again, that influence of trying to keep me towards a life of meaning and not foolishness or wastefulness. To use the time that I've been given, for all of us is a finite time, and for most of us we have no idea how long that is, to use it for the very best purposes that I can in the time that I have. That is the purpose of being a human being. And as a Jew, I understand that to be my prime directive, to quote Spock, that the purpose for my being. Yes? Why don't women, or why do they? So it wasn't necessary for women to wear them. Um, this, this is a symbolic custom. It's not commanded. It's, it's a custom that the Jews have adopted as a reminder of this idea of God's presence. Women have other things that remind them of God's presence. And if you go, if you look at that through a traditional Jewish lens, the thing that reminds them of God's presence is their children. If you'll hang on just one second. Sandy? I'll, I'll call you right back. I'm just finishing a class. I'll call you back in 10 minutes, okay? I right, thanks. Sorry. Another session after this. Um, so women didn't need this physical reminder because the reminder of the, of the miracle of creation was often hanging on to their leg or being held tight to their, to their, to their chest. Yes? So in Jewish tradition, that, that was uh, not the norm, not the expectation. Now, so this is, again, this is historical. This is dated. It's not modern thinking. It's not the thinking of this congregation. So many women today wear a yarmulke or some form of a head covering for its same purpose. Some wear it just at prayer, some wear it outside. Others wear other symbols, and other Jews who don't wear yarmulkes wear other symbols, again, to remind them of their responsibility that there's no hiding. They might wear a Jewish star or 
some other type of amulet. Um, they, some, you might see Orthodox Jews who wear fringes um, beneath their garments. They usually often wear a yarmulke as well. All of that, again, is a reminder. And some say, I don't need a physical reminder. It's inside of me, or it's a reminder because of what I read every day or how I pray every day, and I need to wear something to do it. Again, all of this is a matter of preference, in my opinion, for what works for you that will ultimately get you to the place that you want to be, you know, which is that better version of yourself. Any other final questions? Yes. So the other question was about a talit, <clears throat> or a prayer shawl. Thank you. I mentioned the fringes below the garment. You'll also come into the synagogue, and on a Friday night, um, or in an evening service, I should say, you'll see the rabbi wearing, or the people that are leading the prayer. Uh, it can not only be a rabbi, but some other members of our clergy will wear um, a... Um, a garment like this, and we wear it in this way. And on, during the morning worship services, either on Shabbat on Saturdays or during the week, because Jews pray every day, um, they will wear this as well. Men and women wear it. The fringes are called tzitzit, and if you look closely at them, they are, there's a lot of knots and twists and turns there in the way that they're stitched, the way that they're tied together, I should say. I know you can't all see this, but I feel like I'm accomplishing something just by walking around showing it to some of you. They are symbolic of all the commandments in the Torah. We're going to talk about commandments next week, but Judaism counts 613 commandments in the Torah, 613 rules that we have to follow, not 10. Any close reading of the Bible notes that there are more than 10 times when God says, do this or don't do that. And we count all of those. And this is a reminder of all of those commandments. In fact, if you were to add up all of the knots and twists and turns and the fringes, it would equal 613. So some traditions have worry beads, some have prayer beads, Jews have tzitzit. All serve the same purpose. Don't forget what your prime directives are. Don't forget what the rules are. Don't forget what's expected of you. Any other questions? Well, I think we're right on time. I hope we are. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for coming again. I think there's still more cookies, so please don't go home hungry. My mother would kill me if you went home hungry. Um, a huge thank you to Mary Cohen uh, and Mike Cohen. Uh, Mary is our, our outreach coordinator, and she helped put all of this together. She's the one that you talked to on the phone um, when you signed up for the class. And a wonderful thank you to our, uh, our ambassadors that are here, um, uh, to, to Sandy and to Annette and to Jenny. And did I miss anybody? Is that Mary didn't make it, but maybe she'll be here next time. Um, they are uh, not only at your tables, but hopefully available to you at the, at the schmoozing time or whenever, if you should see them, if you should come here again um, to answer questions and to just help you if you've got things you want to find out about. Uh, and I'm available to you, too, as well. I'll, I'll share with you next week some ways to communicate with me if anybody has questions that you wanted to ask but not in a room filled with people. Again, we invite you to join us for dinner uh, and for services on the 21st of February. Um, it's a 6.30 service followed. It's a really fun musical service, about 45 minutes long, maybe an hour if I talk too long, uh, followed by a dinner afterwards. Um, and we hope you'll join us for that.
Thank you all so much. Thank you. Namaste. Or Nama go. <laughs> now I'm going to go. <laughs> What's it mean? Namaste. I, I, I know I've known it. Peace be upon you. I honor you as you honor me. Well, thank you. Thank you, Melanie. You're welcome. Okay, good. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. No, there is. There's a question. Yeah. yeah. And we meet again next Wednesday at 7.30, and then the Wednesday to follow. Yeah. So, when you say 613? Yeah. So, you know, this is what I struggled with growing mm -hmm. up in terms of what's written versus the interpretation. Right. And so, when you say the 613 rules, well, okay, half an hour going, well, you know, it's. So, next week you'll hear me explain that of those rules, there's two categories. There's those commandments which are moral ethical and those that are s symbolic spiritual. The moral ethical we have no choice in. The symbolic spiritual, you know, it's like what music motivates you on, in the, on the treadmill at the gym. And with those, we in this congregation and even down the street at the conservative synagogue say, yes, you do have choice. Mm -hmm. Some of those speak to us, you know, I like to say the tradition in its day, tradition uh, was right for its day, and in, its, in, in my day, I'm right for my day. Yeah. The tradition has a vote, but not a veto in my life. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do. I really uh, enjoy the Well, thanks. Thanks, I, I find, uh, I find growing up, uh, I, I, I never heard any of this. Right. Maybe I wasn't ready to hear Yeah, I think it's probably a little both. And I'm not saying anything new. Uh, maybe, you know, a little some stuff. But, um, but well, thank you. Um, but, you know, we can't say this when you're, that was not a go. You know, but when you're nine, ten years old, you can't talk about God like this. I mean, it's hard enough to do it in a room filled with adults. All the time. About what? About any of these concepts. Everything. All the time. So every week we have a, uh, a Torah study group here that talks about the weekly Torah portion and it comes into these concepts all the time. We have classes. When I give a sermon, there's usually a discussion portion of that sermon. Certainly on the Saturday morning there is. Friday night sometimes it's more of a of, a, of an oratory. Eh, it's just a bigger room, bigger show. Okay. Um, but you know, there's yeah. discussion all the time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Oh, good. Well, come again. Come again. Sorry. Thank you very much. That was really, really intense. You're very welcome. Thank, Thank you for much. coming. We'll see you next that week. was lovely. Thank you. Thank really you for coming. Good. I'm so glad. Thank you. Thank you. Any internet sites you'd recommend? Um, yeah, myjewishlearning.com.